2: Listening to the Wicked Library. (laughs) Hello, kiddies. This is your beloved librarian. Dan and I were talking about this episode, and he wanted me to tell you about something called a trigger warning. I don't know what that is exactly, so I looked it up on a reliable source on the internet called Urban Dictionary. Let's see what it says. A warning before showing or telling something that could cause a post-traumatic stress disorder reaction. Commonly used as a joke, its meaning unfortunately has depreciated, drawing more stigma to mental illness. Now, that being said, we are not fans of offending anyone. If you're offended by this show, you'd have given up ages ago. But we do want to be careful for our sensitive listeners. Again, if you're a sensitive listener, you should have clocked out about Season 3, I would imagine. (laughs) Be careful of this episode, kiddies. We love all the people that listen to us, but this one might be a little heavy duty. Listener discretion, as always is advised. (laughs) You're going to listen anyway, aren't you? Well, go ahead then. Love you.
3: (laughs) Hello, and welcome to episode number 817 of the Wicked Library, our extra wicked summer anthology. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to our continuing and new Patreon and direct supporters. This episode would not exist without them. If you enjoy this show and want to see us keep making it, you should support us on Patreon. Not only do all our patrons get a completely ad-free show, they also get access to our archives with the first five seasons, official bookmarks, and at the $5 a month and above level, you get an extra story each month. The stories that you're hearing today were released in June, July, and August to our patrons, for instance. And starting last month, all $5 and above supporters also get access to our new exclusive Patreon show, Wicked Fairy Tales, which are selected dark fairy tales as told by your librarian. These are traditional versions of fairy tales with all the murder, sex, and wickedness left intact. That is, not sanitized for general consumption. Fairy tales for adults, like they were originally intended. And at the $10 a month and above level, you'll get to hear our new show, available only to our supporters, The Private Collector. You can sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library to become a friend of The Wicked Library, and of course, a friend of The Librarian. We're working very hard this season to make the show sustainable for season nine and beyond. And we do need your help to do that. Finally, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show. And of course we love to hear why you listen to the wicked tales we share. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting the show and our contributors. As I always ask, If you enjoy the stories you hear, find the work of the authors and buy their work. It keeps them making more. You can find links to them and their work at thewickedlibrary.com. And of course, don't forget our artists and composers. They have work out there for you to support as well. If you enjoy what they do for the show, you're going to love what they do other places as well. We are nearing the end of our season. But October being, well, October, you can expect it to be a big month. We'll have something special planned for you every single week in October, so get ready. Now, without further ado, let's dive into our Extra Wicked summer anthology with three great stories by three great authors told by a talented cast of voice actors and scored by We Talk of Dreams' Nico Vitese.
2: In your library, and this time there's plenty to be afraid of. Hold on to yourselves before something else grabs hold of you. Don't worry about the lights, it's darker than ever now. Start screaming, something extra wicked this way comes. <laughs>
3: This story, The Thing in the Cave, is told by Randy Burner.
1: The Thing in the Cave by Aaron Palmer My dearest Anne, by now you will have discovered my body and will have heard that I shot Josiah. Words cannot express the regret I feel that your last memory of me will be my corpse hanging from the rafters, condemned "'all our neighbors as a murderer. "'The thought of you makes my hand tremble "'as I write this, and my resolve weakens even now. "'I wanted to spend so much more time with you, "'so many more evenings by the fire, "'speaking on the many subjects "'of which you are wonderfully knowledgeable. "'I wanted to see Thomas take over the practice in my old age, "'watch Susanna catch the eye of every boy "'from here to Braintree. "'But Anne... I swear to you, what I have done is necessary. I write this to explain myself, but also as a warning. And you and the children must stay away from the cave in the hills outside of town. Warn everyone you know. They will not believe you if you tell them what I am about to tell you, but make up some tale. Do whatever you can, but stay away from that cave." You must have wondered what happened to us up there. Why the priest has not come into town to proselytize since that night. Why Josiah came back, a raving lunatic, who could no longer even feed himself. Why I, never before a martial man, began to keep no less than three loaded muskets in our room, and why I insisted on moving our bed so that I could always see both the door and the window." "'We woke something that night, Anne. "'We disturbed something terrible, and now it hunts us. "'I have spent every waking hour since then feeling watched. "'At night, I hear rustlings and scratchings at the door, "'and Deborah Martin told me that she saw a large, queerly-shaped shadow "'moving down the street in the small hours one morning "'when she rose to feed her baby. "'Once, right outside the window,' I heard a frightful hiss so like a sound we heard in the cave that I could not sleep for the rest of the night. That was the morning I told you I could not work for being ill, if you recall. I do not know what it is, for I never saw it. But it killed the priest, and Josiah beheld it clearly, and the sight of it drove him mad. This is why, after finishing this account, I must kill Josiah. "'and then myself. "'This thing is stalking us, "'and I cannot bear the thought of it finding us. "'I am so sorry, Anne, "'but I can no longer handle the fear "'I have felt unceasingly since that night. "'Every time I close my eyes, "'I hear the priest shrieking, "'hear the thing chasing us through the cave. "'I cannot permit this creature to find "'either me or Josiah.' Let me tell you what happened, and then perhaps you will understand. I hope to heaven that you will believe me. It was Josiah who first suggested we explore the cave. I know you often found his braggadocious nature tiring, and yes, his oft-repeated story of spending the night alone in Cook's Glen was almost certainly false. But he truly was an adventurous, brave man, far more so than I. He may have embellished a great many of his tales, but there was always a kernel of truth to them. We were all three at the priest's sad little roadside chapel, just a little ways out of town where Josiah took supper every Sunday evening to share with him. Despite his faults, Josiah was at heart a good man, who extended Christian charity to all he met, even Catholics. We had finished eating, and the priest, Peter was his name, if you did not know, had persuaded us to stay a while and partake of some rum he had with him. Josiah needed little persuading. After talking and imbibing for some time, Josiah made his fateful suggestion. No one he knew of had explored it in any meaningful way, he said, except for perhaps the town founders many years ago. He wondered if perhaps we might make some great discovery. Peter and I both assented. "'You may be surprised. "'You know I am not normally one for these sorts of excursions. "'The only excuse I can give for this departure from serious behavior "'was the influence of the poisonous Jamaica spirits. "'I wonder now if the events of that night "'were God's way of punishing us for our intemperance. "'We took lanterns and set off, and at length reached the cave. "'To look at its mouth you would not think it a dangerous place.' It is no dread, miasmal entrance to Hades, gaping open like some hideous black maw, but simply a narrow gap in the rock, tight enough that we had to enter in single file. The ground immediately sloped downward, and we made our way into the earth very carefully, for the rum had us somewhat unsteady. It was not long before the ground leveled off, however, and opened into a spacious chamber of stone, in which our house could likely have rested quite comfortably, with many stalactites hanging down from the high ceiling. As we entered the chamber, I noticed that the tips of some of the longer stalactites had been broken off. We ambled around for about 15 minutes. There were several chambers, similar to the first one, honeycombing the cave, connected by narrow passages. Peter made sure to mark the walls periodically so we would be able to find our way back. There was nothing of interest in any of them, and I quickly began to grow irritable. I was bored and tired of walking and was thirsty from the rum. I was about to suggest that we call a halt and make our way back when we entered the next chamber and my mouth fell open of its own accord. What an historic find! This cave had been used by ancient humans. The walls were covered with pictographic carvings. At the far end of the chamber was a large stone table atop a raised section of rock with another strange carving above it, this one abstract and spider-like. It looked like some primitive altar. My heart skipped a beat as I saw that an unfathomably old bowl was still resting on the table in marvelous condition. In the middle of the chamber was a great yawning black hole in the floor, like some sort of well, I walked up to it and crouched down, and lowered my lantern down into the darkness. It was not deep. I could see the bottom by the light of the flame. It looked as though there was a pathway leading deeper into the cave within the well. I found this curious, and began to formulate plans of hiring men and coming back here with rope the next day to investigate it. I rose and stood there marveling at the chamber, wishing fervently that I had brought my sketching supplies— I noticed the candle in my lantern was almost burnt down and snuffed out my flame to conserve it. Just then, Josiah beckoned me over to the walls. He and Peter were gazing at the carvings. I peered closer and thought with a chill that perhaps I did not want to see what was in the well after all. The section of carvings they were looking at depicted some sort of ritual. In one image, a figure stood at the table, "'Arms raised high, while others crowded around the well in worship. "'Smoke rose from the bowl on the table. "'In the next image, two men were dragging a third towards the well. "'The third figure was clearly struggling, "'and the image after that I saw with a thrill of disgust and horror "'depicted the figure being thrown down the well "'and the crowd exulting in dark celebration. "'Peter muttered something about barbaric pagans.' And I was inclined to agree. It was strange, however. Although it appeared that the well in the middle of the chamber had been used for human sacrifice, it had not been deep enough for that fall to kill a man, and there had not been any bones. Peter now walked over to inspect the grim well, and Josiah followed him. Josiah must have stepped on a loose stone that turned under his foot, because as he came up behind the priest he tripped and fell headlong into the man's back. The poor wretch lost his balance and tumbled into the well. He groaned as he hit the ground, and his lantern went out. Josiah shouted down, asking Peter if he was hurt. He replied that he was not, but that there was no way for him to climb back up. He asked if we could go back and fetch some rope. Curse us! as we were too drunk to remember that we might need it. We assented and turned back the way we came. I heard Peter fumbling with his tinderbox as we made for the exit to the chamber, light shone from below as he lit his lantern again. And we both stopped, dead in our tracks as we heard him moan in a voice thick with terror, Mother of God! He began to scream, a high, wild, hysterical wail. To my horror, I heard something moving below, something that made a terrible, scraping sound against the walls of the tunnel, and then I heard a frightfully loud, snake-like hiss. Peter howled that something was down there with him and pleaded for us to help him, but Josiah and I both stayed rooted to the spot, unable to move. "'What could we have done, Anne? We had no weapons, nothing to throw to him to help him to safety. "'What could we do but stand there and listen?' "'I could hear the thing's movements growing louder, and Peter's shrieking became more and more frantic. "'He began to pray in Latin, a nigh-unintelligible babble that was quickly cut short as the thing must have reached him. "'The desperate prayer ended in a blood-curdling cry of, "'Get off! Get off!' Oh, God, get off me! He screeched piteously and began to sob, and I heard his cries grow fainter, as though the thing were dragging him back down the tunnel with it. He screamed and screamed until suddenly I heard him give out a gurgling choke. And then all was silent. Josiah and I stood there, shocked and horrified beyond imagining. I was trembling from head to toe. Josiah... Must have been too. I heard the lantern in his hand rattling, but after a short time he seemed to steel himself and hurried over to the gaping well where Peter's lantern still shone. He bent down calling the priest's name, I followed him, and as I reached his side he lay flat on his belly and stuck nearly all of his upper body into the well waving his lantern about. Inching forward slightly, he slid too far into the hole and began to fall in. I leaped forward and was able to grab the tails of his shirt. I strained and strained, pulling with both hands and bracing myself with my legs. My back felt as though it would break at any moment, but suddenly and surely, Josiah began to rise out of the well. Then something moved below. I could not see into the hole, for I was leaned back with the effort of hauling my friend up, but poor man Josiah was still nearly halfway down, and by the light of the two lanterns he could see clearly, and he began to scream. Summoning every last ounce of strength I had, I gave an almighty tug and yanked him out, and we both collapsed in a heap at the lip of the well. I heard a hideous scrambling from below, and that bone-chilling hiss— and the light that still shone in the pit from Peter's lantern was obscured by a gigantic shadow as something very large passed over it. Josiah picked up his lantern, which, thank God, was still lit, and flew to the entrance of the chamber crying for me to run. As I scrambled to my feet and followed, I could hear the thing climbing out of the well. Josiah had a head start on me, and it was all I could do to keep him and the lantern light in sight." He ran as though the furries flew behind him, lashing with their whips, and my chest began to burn as I tried frantically to keep up. He stopped only to look for Peter's marks on the wall and then would fly off again. I shouted at him to wait for me, but in vain. And all the while I could hear the thing behind us chasing us. Another horrifying hiss sounded behind me and my blood went cold at how close it sounded. I pumped my legs harder running, as I had never run before. At last we reached the first chamber. Hope flared in my heart, but it was quickly dashed. As without so much as a backwards glance, Josiah flew up the incline to the surface, heedless to my screams, taking his lantern and leaving me behind in complete darkness. I ran in the rough direction of the entrance, but misjudged it and collided headfirst into the rock wall. I picked myself up, and began to feel desperately for the way out, another hiss sounded behind me. The thing was now in the chamber with me. I could hear stones being turned aside as it moved. There was a loud crack, and then a clattering of more rocks, and I thought of the broken stalactites we had seen when we first came into this chamber. I began to weep as I pawed at the rock wall. All I could think of were Peter's horrific screams. The thing was drawing closer. The sounds of its movement were getting louder. I could almost feel its oppressive presence there in the black, like the feeling in the air before a thunderstorm. And then... Just when I could hear that the creature was only feet away, my fingers found the gap in the stone. I flung myself up the incline and scrambled up as fast as I could. I heard another great scrambling, and then a crash that shook the rock under me as the thing slammed its bulk into the gap. It gave one last furious hiss, but I did not hear it follow. An overwhelming feeling of relief quickly replaced my fear. It must have been far too large to fit through the gap and pursue me. I was safe. I made it to the surface and into the blessed moonlight. I did not stop but ran and kept running until I made it back to Black Oak where I fainted in the street. I thought the horrible affair was done with after our escape, but I was disabused of that comforting notion the first time I heard something moving outside our window. There must be other ways out of the cave. It is undoubtedly tormenting Josiah as well. His wife says that he screams and thrashes when the sun begins to set and will not sleep a wink until dawn breaks again. I hope you now understand why I have done what I did. It was only a matter of time before the thing found us, and I simply cannot bear that. You may think me weak. You may think me cowardly. And I am so sorry, Anne, but I cannot live with the constant fear and the knowledge that soon my torturous end will come. My one hope is that it only wants me and Josiah, its prey that escaped, and that once we are gone, it will leave you and the children alone. But I implore you, if you begin to hear strange noises at night, noises that cannot be explained, then take the children and leave town immediately. I love you, Anne. Perhaps our Creator, in His infinite wisdom, will understand, will take pity on me and allow us to meet again someday in paradise. Goodbye, my darling. Your husband, Malachi. Malachi.
2: Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come! <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on?
4: <laughs>
3: New from Murd Comics at MerdComics.com comes Umbra Libro a double presentation for James Murd and Alex Murd. Fans of the Wicked Library will remember James's story There Will Be Refreshments, under the name James Johnson, from Episode 714, and fans all know Alex Murd is one of our resident artists who created the main art for the show and cover artwork for numerous episodes. In this shadow book of amazing artwork, James debuts his latest installment of his ongoing Ezra series, Ezra the Dreamer, The End of the Beginning, or The Beginning of the End, the opening sequence for Ezra's Greatest Conflict. This amazing comic book also includes Alex Murd's debut issue of Gimme Shelter, which centers on a certain fallen angel lamenting divinity and humanity during the hectic holiday season until a beautiful stranger comes into his sights. You can find Ezra, fallen angels, scantily clad men, and more at MerdComics.com Get your copy today at murdcomics.com And if you live or will be in the Pacific Northwest this fall, you can look for the Merd Comics team at a convention near you. Coming to the Olympia Zine Festival October 13th in Olympia, Washington. The Jet City Comics Show, November 3rd through 4th in Tacoma, Washington. The u Comics and Zine Festival, November 10th in Eugene, Oregon. For more information and to get your copy of their new book, Visit Murdcomics.com. <laughs> this story, The Orphan Room, is told by Jessica McAvoy. The
5: Orphan Room by Zachary T. Owen. Nobody knows how to escape the Orphan Room. That's what the whispers of the street say. But how, Michelle wonders, can they know that nobody escapes? The very utterance of the phrase Orphan Room seems to indicate an awareness that this place, whether in this reality or another shifting plane, exists. And an awareness of its existence Dictates that somebody has been there and lived to tell the tale. Just as easily, it is a fairy tale, another morbid urban myth to rationalize missing children. It's easy for children and adults to construct dark fantasies explaining what they cannot accept. Children run away. They are raped and killed, frequently by their own relatives. They are drowned, burned, and suffocated. They perish in the streets, in empty houses, in houses filled to brimming with people, in houses of the mind, in forgotten ghettos, forgotten alleyways, decrepit playgrounds, in the pit of the American dream. Children die. Their festering, putrescent bodies are found in Dad's freezer, in neglected cribs, in the arms of mothers who have strangled them to death. Fantasy is better than this. Fantasy is a way out of the hard, visceral truth. Michelle, ravenously hungry for knowledge even at the age of 16, has studied history, classic literature, every book and magazine she can get her hands on. A girl of her intellect is above finding fantasy in reality, though certainly she loves escapism. And she loves escaping. Many families have taken her in, and many have lost her. When she is bored with them or sees they aren't the family she wants them to be, she runs away. Too often, her smarts intimidate her foster parents, and the love they want to give... A condescending, patronizing love evaporates like rain on hot black asphalt. Too often, her age negates any feelings of need, of want, that a family could have for her. Inevitably, she will return to the orphanage, the only place which feels like home, and wait to be sent out to a new family, a new place to escape from. Until she is eighteen then she will be on her own. She is capable of surviving physically, but she has never been certain she will survive mentally unless she can find others like her, damaged and cynical but able to sneer at life and trudge through it. Tonight she roams the city streets, having just escaped from the Schaefer household. Tonight, she breathes in lungful after lungful of bitter urban air and feels the coolness of damp wind as it nuzzles her neck. Michelle makes her way through old alleyways. She slips through abandoned houses and construction yards. Night is coming fast, bringing with its dark hold a freedom she loves, maybe the only freedom she has. There is something liberating about night. Of course, they are going to kill her when she finally returns to the orphanage. They are going to be worried sick, as the Shafers are now. Probably there is a policeman cruising the streets right now to find her. Probably he won't find her. She finds a familiar alley and leans against a wall of brick and mortar, The wall is uneven and uncomfortable, but she persists and digs a slim, dog-eared book from her back pocket. Great Poems by Women is a book which has brought her a singular feeling of comfort many other works cannot. Her mother had loved many of the poems contained in this tome and read them to her as a child. Memories of her mother are vague. She cannot find proper footholds, crevices in which to poke and prod until love is found hiding. But a feeling of some sort, security, loss, persists. It's as real as love to Michelle. It's all she has left of the woman who birthed her. Michelle pages through until she finds the eagle and the mole There are many lines which she thinks are particularly striking for their imagery and their wordplay, but it is disembodied bones which strikes her deepest, sparks her imagination most. A sound like a scolding adult breaks Michelle from her poems. She listens, intent on catching the sound again, and it comes. It is a disappointed grunt. It is an agitated moan. These are the sounds she has heard from adults all her life. Only now the sound, the sounds, have a subtle off-kilter quality which unnerves her and makes her hands tremble slightly. It feels like the disappointed grunt and the agitated moan are given by a person on the edge of death. This is an absurd feeling to have about a sound, which Michelle cannot know really exists, but she feels it all the same. She takes a breath and clears her thoughts. She puts her book into her back pocket and waits to hear if the sound returns. Carefully, she tries to tune her sensitivity to detect and separate real sounds from imagined ones. She hears it. A long, exasperated groan. She looks down both sides of the alley and sees nothing. She balls her fists and knows what the problem is. She isn't looking in the right place. Turning her gaze upward, feeling her jaw tighten shut, she sees the source. Three men look down upon her from a glassless window. The fathers, she thinks. That is what the whisperers call the abductors, those who feed orphans into the orphan room. Perhaps people can speak of the orphan room existing after all, if they have seen the fathers in action, have seen them haul screeching children away. The men have detestable faces, with eyes like knife slits across porcelain white flesh, and mouths like garish wounds lined with jagged, irregular teeth. They watch Michelle with their unreadable eyes, their dreadful eyes. One of them croaks out words. Her mind does not make sense of the syllables, She begins to back away from them, slowly at first, then with more speed. She does not take her sight off of the men. They lean further through the window, their bodies cloaked in patchwork suits, the material collected from hundreds of expensive, suave business suits of suave, expensive businessmen. Any one piece of material taken and expanded into a suit of its own would be handsome and charming, but as works of piecemeal, these materials take on a terrifying irregularity. Just where have the fathers obtained all the patches of their suits? The faint splashes of red are morbidly telling. Michelle feels gravel and debris crackling under her sneakers, She feels her smallness, her insignificance as a lone stranger in an alley that is not hers. She spins around and goes bolting headfirst into a patchwork business suit, and suddenly prying, cold hands clutch at her and throw her over a hard shoulder, and she is hauled back toward the waiting fathers. Slowly, she is carried into the building. A scream starts in her, but rushes of dizziness and hotness overcome her, and then her eyes are closing, and she is losing focus and trying desperately not to, trying to let out that stubborn scream. But her will isn't enough. She manages to tilt her head slightly as her carrier ascends old, ruddy stairs. She sees the fathers waiting for her with arms spread in greeting, their gestures exaggerated. They are caricatures of men. These are the strange noises she hears coming from within the throat of one of the things waiting for her. And though the words are foreign, Michelle knows what they mean. Take her to the orphan room. When Michelle opens her eyes, She stares at the abstract patterns before her and concentrates on finding an image. Ink blots, she thinks. Her vision fuzzies and sways, and she can discern no pattern. She feels a lump form in her throat. She begins to see the abstraction for what it is. Splashes of dried blood, hunks of old bone embedded in the wall. She stands. The dirty chamber smells of mixed metals, copper, steel, and something more foul. Everything is stained and rusted, and the foul stink permeates the place despite a vent in the ceiling. Tiny cameras spy down on her from the corners of the room, the eyes of the fathers. The chamber is high, It is circular in form, though not a perfect circle. The curvature is interrupted by three steel doors, smooth and featureless. I'm in the orphan room. I'm there. She laughs. Not a ha-ha laugh, but a nervous, detached, mechanical laugh. The sound of her own voice in the empty chamber disturbs her. As Michelle flexes her toes and takes a tentative step forward, she realizes her feet are naked. The feel of rust and dirt upon her soles makes her uncomfortable. She looks at her hands. They are blistered and bruised. Had she made some effort to forestall coming to this place that resulted in battle scars? She sits back down. Something is missing. She reaches into her back pocket and feels for her dog-eared book. It isn't there. Is this it? My final moments? It is now that another part of the orphan room mythos creeps into her head and whispers inside her skull. It says, The mothers will be here soon. Yes. The mothers. How could she forget them? They are one of the integral parts of the orphan room. Derelict, vicious mothers who battle each other for orphans. Finally, mothers who truly want me, she thinks. Mothers who would kill for me. Mothers who might kill me. A faraway clunk captures Michelle's ears. She stands up again, examining the doors, hoping none of them have opened. Something is making a scraping noise. She spins around, trying to keep an eye on every inch of the room. A dim light creeps inward from under one of the doors as it lifts, gradually. Now, another. Three doors exist in this chamber. Three doors will open in this chamber. Michelle twirls around, watching every door, waiting for a springing attacker. The scraping noise grows stronger, fiercer. A woman with a hook hand claws her way into the room from one of the opening doors. Michelle gasps. One mother? The remaining two doors are uneven with each other as they lift, slowly, tauntingly. A second mother, incredibly emaciated and wild-eyed, walks into the chamber in a half-crouch. She wails. Her voice does not sound human, but it isn't animal either. Two mothers? The door, which hasn't yet birthed a mother, creaks as it retracts to the limit. The metal is gone, and only black space remains. Michelle sprints for it. She steps into the black, and her forehead smacks into cold human flesh. Stunned, she falls on her rump. A third mother stares down at her. She smiles a fractured, ugly smile, sensing the presence of her daughter-to-be. Crab walking backward, Michelle finds herself in the center of the orphan room. The third mother comes staggering back into view, a thing so scalded and scarred, so mottled and misshapen, she isn't certain it is a woman at all. Her imagination proves impossible to mute, even in terror. She quickly invents names for each of the mothers. Hangup, Rawbone, and The Scar. Please, you don't want me, she says to the mothers. They stand around her in a circle, practically drooling. And then the chamber doors, one after another, slam shut like steel traps. Shack, shack, shack please. I'm not really an orphan. I have a perfectly alive mother. I have a father who hugs and kisses me when I come home from school. I have a sister who can't say my name yet. I have a brother who draws pictures of me in burning houses. They do not let up. Either the mothers know she is lying or simply don't care. Maybe they can't comprehend her at all. Hangup reaches out for her. Michelle squirms away, her muscles alive with nervous energy. She narrowly avoids the scar as it lurches forward, grabbing at her. Michelle runs toward one of the chamber doors and bangs futility, screaming, My family will be looking for me! She doesn't mean to frame it as a question, but that's how it comes out. The mothers line up behind her, shambling closer. Falling to hands and knees, Michelle scrambles through the legs of the mothers, headed for the other side of the chamber. Ugly hands grab at her, brush against her hair. Hangup turns and launches herself, goes taut against the floor, and her remaining hand catches Michelle's foot. Her hook cuts through the air, headed for the heel, determined to sink into her new daughter's flesh and pull her close. Michelle pulls her foot away, and the hook sparks against the chamber's base. The mother's touch lingers. It will always linger, all of their touches. They will linger forever. I am not your child. You cannot have me, Michelle says. She is crying now. Strangely, the absence of the book in her back pocket nags at her. She wishes she had something here to remind her of the world she has left behind. To remind her of a mother she hardly knew but who loved her would protect her from these vicious things masquerading as human. Hangup and the scar begin tussling with each other. Rawbone bites her pale, thin lips and rushes forward toward Michelle, her anorexic form shaking with excitement as she reaches for her prey. Crawling frantically, backing against one of the chamber doors, Michelle releases a flurry of kicks. One of them makes contact, and with a dry snap, Rawbone falls down on one knee and howls. Behind her, Hang-up is on the floor, convulsing. The scar approaches. She falls forward, flattening raw bone. Her bones make noises like splintering wood. Her torso nearly shatters under the pressure. She gives one final scream, one last alien call into the rusted chamber, and goes still. Two mothers left. Michelle manages to stand. The scar approaches her, burnt, ugly fingers clutching with an anger fingers should not convey. A greedy, sorrowful anger. Breathing deep, she looks into the transfixing gaze of the scar and freezes. There is nowhere to go in the orphan room, no alleyways to escape to no abandoned house to hide in the scar ceases her clutching and somehow her burnt face manages to convey an expression of tenderness the scar stands before Michelle and offers her hand you're not going to hurt me Michelle asks the scar shakes her head her body is fascinating it is a map of history Michelle does not understand. There are intersecting cuts, areas of raised flesh, pockmarks, raw, oozing skin, and places of hardened tissue. It is impossible to know if the damage was done all at once or over a period of years. The scar grits her teeth and wails. She flexes her shoulders and throws her head back. A hook is buried in her side. Hangup peeks from behind one of her shoulders and offers a smile. Ripping the hook from her side with her gnarled, burned fingers, the scar turns a hateful gaze upon Hangup and grasps her by the throat. The mother does not have time to counterattack. The scar chokes her, pulls her to the floor, overpowered with a potent, savage zest for violence. She begins stomping on Hangup's skull, shocking her opponent into submission. The bone is resilient at first, but eventually it gives and cracks with a wet thud and gray matter oozes out. The sound is not loud. It is almost disappointingly anticlimactic. Michelle wipes red spackle from her face. The scar gently touches her chin. She puts a loving hand on her cheek, seems to feel a sadness for having killed the other mothers. She lifts her up, kissing her on the mouth with a lipless, charred maw. It's over, Michelle says. The scar nods. She cradles her and manages to say, It is disturbing and somehow comforting how easily the scar wrenches the vent out of the ceiling of the orphan room. She beckons Michelle to follow her, and the two of them crawl through the darkened vent. It is like being inside the throat of a metal beast. A raw sewage smell and something viler wafts and lazes through the throat, causing Michelle to dry-heave and make pinched faces. The scar does not seem to notice the stink. Her hardened hands slap aggressively against the metal as she leads the way. Michelle's own hands burn with pain as she travels. Soon, they arrive at the mouth of the throat, where the light remains faint a dim, gaudy light from an adjoining room. The scar hops into the room, blocking its contents from Michelle's view. The scar holds up her hands to catch Michelle, and she jumps into them. Her body lets out a slight tremor under the scar's touch. She feels vulnerable in the wild mother's arms, hoping they won't suddenly snatch her breath from her, break her neck, or toss her into a forgotten chamber and leave her there. The fathers, an innumerable amount of them, are sitting in the room in rickety chairs before a stained, chipped table littered with bones. A steel door is behind them. On the table among the bones is Michelle's book, the pages as scattered as the bones. The scar sets down Michelle, who is silently crying at the loss of her book, her only memento of her mother. The fathers begin to clap. Is that it? A contest? We won? Michelle wonders. She licks her parched lips and feels an ache in her knees from crawling through the vent. Her bruises echo a sentiment of pain. They do not wish to be forgotten. And then one of the fathers speaks, bracing his hands together, his disfigured expression unreadable. That that way, he says. Once again, Michelle doesn't know what language this is. And once again, she knows what the words mean. Now you die the game is over. The fathers have been entertained. Now they will kill the winners and then search for more competitors. This is how the orphan room operates. Michelle understands this now without having to be told. It is plainly clear to her. One of the fathers buries his hand deep within the vest under his patchwork suit he pulls out a knife, ancient and strangely shaped. He nods his head grimly, and his brothers bury their hands, and they too pull out strange blades. One of them charges the scar. He sticks her with his knife. It has a hard time penetrating the rough, calloused skin it strikes on her stomach. She grasps the fist of the father and crushes it in her burnt fingers. He sinks to the floor in agony, and she drives her knee into his face, smashing the cartilage in his nose. The father grasps at his bloodied face, and his knife-slit eyes fill with tears as he falls backward onto the concrete floor and sprawls awkwardly. The remaining fathers charge and overtake the scar. Michelle is hoisted into the air and looks down into the face of one of the fathers. It looks into her face and shakes her violently, throws her against a wall. The pain is everywhere at first and then focuses like a pinprick and Michelle realizes her arm is broken. So she stands, awkwardly, and backs away. It is then that she sees her lost book has in the tussle, fallen on the floor. The pages fan out as it sits like a dusty moth. Stooping, she snatches the book up with her able hand and hurls it into the face of her attacker. Stunned, he grunts and steps backward. Michelle wants to tell him, How dare you take my book? How dare you leave it on the floor like it has no meaning? But instead she screams, and without planning, without thinking, she runs toward the father, kneeing him in the gut, beating him with her fist, spitting on his gnarled face. Her vision goes dim and unfocused, strange little bubbles floating in and out of her periphery, and she passes out while still beating the father, though he has stopped moving. She wakes to beauty and blood and silence, and air filled with rage. The scar has killed them all. She is hurt, but Michelle cannot easily differentiate her new wounds from old. A sling made of torn cloth now adorns Michelle's broken arm, and she smiles as the scar picks her up and carries her through the night. She forgets about the orphanage, about the Schaffers, about her nameless, never-there father, and the nameless fathers who sought to destroy her and mothers alike. She almost forgets the vague memories of her birth mother, the very few she still has, but they bite her in the brain and fill her nerves, and she promises to feed the memories. Keep them tenderly in her heart and give them new purpose. Lift them up from emptiness and uncertainty and despair and fashion them into something else. They find the burnt black innards of a charred two-story house and move in. The scar brings Michelle books. They form mountains. This is the happiest she has ever been. The scar tells her there are other orphan rooms. There are other daughters who need saving, and sons, too. She will find them homes with mothers who love them like she now loves Michelle. She promises Michelle she is not hiding other children in other burnt houses. Children she loves more than her. Every night, Mother returns smelling of violence but touches Michelle with a tenderness she has not known since her birth mother. Soft, soothing hugs, and tiny, plentiful kisses along her face and arms, which reduce her to a caring child, erase the jaded teenager she once was. She reads her poems. Michelle listens in awe. Mother's voice trembles. Struggles to form words sometimes, but always says them with utter warmth as she holds her daughter tightly against her. If you would keep your soul from spotted sight or sound, live like the velvet mole, go burrow underground, and there hold intercourse with roots of trees and stones With rivers at their source and disembodied bones.
2: Hey, where do you think you're going? There's more stories here at the Wicked Library. Stick around or we'll turn the lights off for good.
3: this story bloodbath in the first grade is not for sensitive listeners as you can probably tell from the title it's told by mary murphy peter lewis addison peacock nicole goodnight and yours truly bloodbath in the first grade by matthew weber on the opening day of school Laura Wyndham found a vase of water and pink roses at her desk. The headmaster had left the gift, along with a note that read, Good luck
4: on your first day at Shady Break. Here's hoping things go smoothly and you don't get stuck with any bad apples. Happy teaching, Principal Croker.
3: Laura folded the note and placed it in a drawer, convinced there could be no such thing as a bad apple in a class full of young minds and fresh faces. As the pupils filed in, she stood in front of her first grade class with a broad smile to make everyone feel welcome. The students sat in six rows of desks. Some children stared at her, while others fidgeted or whispered to their schoolmates. One young girl with long brown hair slumped in her chair at the back of the room and leered through her stringy bangs with a stark scowl.
0: Hello, children,
3: Lara greeted. Hello, replied a handful of kids.
0: I'm Mrs. Windham.
3: Lara walked to the blackboard, as apprehensive as the students about the new school and her first job as an educator. Molding young minds was a great responsibility, but she was determined to meet the challenge.
0: Windham is pronounced like the words wind and ham.
3: She wrote them in chalk on the board, marking a hyphen between them.
0: Wind Ham.
3: A tow haired girl with pink skin sat in a corner seat.
0: Hello, Mrs. Windham.
3: Laura bent down and favored her with a smile. Hi there. Then she stepped to her desk, picked up a notebook, and addressed the class at large.
0: Welcome to Shady Break Elementary. I'll be your first grade teacher. I look forward to having fun with all of you as we learn lots of new things this year. Now I'm going to call Roll. When I get to your name, please say here and tell us something about yourself.
3: A murmur of soft responses shuffled through the classroom.
0: Tommy Adams.
3: A boy in the back seat next to the brown-haired girl raised his hand. He had a head full of sandy curls and wore a white shirt with a purple smear on the collar. Here, he piped. I'm Tommy and I like to go fishing and I have a fish tank too. He puckered his lips and wagged his hands beside his ears like fins. The class chuckled.
0: Nice to meet you, Tommy,
3: Mrs. Wyndham said. She scrolled down the list.
0: Myra Butler. That's me,
3: said the toe-haired girl.
0: My name is Myra Butler, and I like unicorns and puzzles and baking cookies. Pleasure to make your acquaintance, Myra. Let's see. Jonathan Dunwoody.
3: A chubby kid with a buzz cut shot up his hand and proffered his love of Reese's Cups, Three Musketeers, and Twix. The brown-haired girl's glower of disgust never softened as she eyeballed the other students. She wore a smudged black sweater with gray sweatpants that had dry mud caked near the ankles. Lara made a mental note about the mud, then continued down the list with each child responding with their preferences for toys, food, recreational activities as they did the girl leveled each with a withering gaze that bled utter contempt as though every one of them had gravely wronged her in a most personal way such a shame thought Laura. at such a young age she appeared to carry a weight far beyond her years and Laura knew that some sort of heartache hid behind all the anger with kids that was always the case She called the last name on the list,
0: Vanessa Wilkins,
3: the unhappy girl locked eyes with her, but did not answer. Instead, two black pigtails jiggled on the far side of the classroom as a different girl said,
0: Here, I like riding bikes and cupcakes and swimming.
3: Something about the brown-haired girl's bottomless eyes and her ominous stillness, she radiated a hatred more intense than anything Laura had ever seen from a child. Her soft features took a hard edge over the stiff angles of her grimace, like a strange flower on the verge of blossoming vast black petals that will darken everything around.
0: I'm sorry, you don't seem to be on my list. What's your name?
3: Without breaking her gaze, the girl slowly stood from her chair. Lifting a gray backpack from her lap, she pinched the zipper and slid it open. Her hand slipped into the pouch. She withdrew a wooden spool. No, not a spool, something longer. Skinny fingers gripped the handle, and on its end, extended a thin, shiny rod. She had an ice pick. Laura's pulse quickened.
0: What on earth are-
3: The girl leaned forward, and her eyes narrowed as thin as her lips. Her mouth opened with an ear-splitting screech that cut through Lara's brain and chilled her spine. The students threw their hands to their ears. With a mad snarl, the girl whipped around to Tommy Adams. Her arm curled in an uppercut that shoved the ice pick beneath the boy's jaw. His head snapped back. The tip shot out of his mouth. She slammed his curly head onto the desk like Lara had seen her dad slap a fresh-caught crappie down to clean it. The room exploded with screams. Tommy made a nasally mewling noise, struggling beneath the fishhook grip of the pick. Lara screamed as well and shook her hands uselessly. She rushed between the rows and batted at the girl with open palms to ward her off. The girl ripped out the ice pick and raised it high. It came at Lara with a gleaming point. She ducked. It snagged her sleeve and ripped the fabric. Lara stumbled backward. Desks toppled as children tripped over each other in retreat. The girl lunged across a chair and stabbed a boy in the back. His head jerked back, his lips stretched tight. Eyes squinting, he fell over. Most students ran to the opposite wall, putting their teacher between them and the danger. Two boys leapt into a closet and braced the door as a barricade. Others made a dash for the exit but the mad girl loped across the furniture with animal speed and cut them off. With another screech, she slashed the ice pick and caught Jonathan Dunwoody on his chubby neck. His flesh opened like soft fruit, and a flood of dark blood poured over the floor as he collapsed and flopped around.
5: Stop her, Mrs. Wyndham!
3: A child pleaded. Lara snagged two kids by their collars and jerked them away from the girl, thrusting them behind her. She stood guard over the others without a plan and only prayer.
0: For God's sake, someone get in here!
3: She screamed as loud as possible. Another teacher, a passing janitor, someone had to help. Two ropes of unwashed hair draped down the girl's face as she hung her head low and leered up, eyes never straying from Lara. She stamped a foot forward and the children gasped. The girl stalked ahead two more steps, and the kid shrieked. The ice pick passed from one thin hand to the other, then back again eagerly, like she took pleasure in the pain it wrought. Lara shrank back a couple of steps, then realized she would soon run out of floor space. They all would. Windows covered half the wall behind them, but they tilted out at their tops and only opened six inches wide. Useless. She grabbed the wastebasket beside her desk, a black cylinder of metal mesh, and held it as a shield. A cascade of papers fluttered down from it onto the linoleum floor. The girl swung the ice pick. Lara blocked it. The girl stabbed and jabbed, but Lara switched the basket back and forth to deflect her.
0: Stop it, young lady. Stop it!
3: Stabs came faster, harder, the ice pick striking like an asp from thrusting forearm.
0: You drop that knife!
3: Lara screamed, baffled by the girl's strength and quickness. The girl dropped down and reached beneath her, slashing at Lara's legs, nicking her shin. Lara leapt up as the girl slipped forward and Jonathan Dunwoody's pulling blood. They both lost their balance, and Lara brought her weight down onto the basket, smashing down onto the young slasher. The girl smacked the floor face first with a grunt. With a click and a whirr, The ice pick rolled away. Bracing a knee atop the wastebasket with the girl struggling beneath, Laura took a deep breath, then recognized the moment. She scrambled for the weapon. A boy stopped its roll beneath his sneaker. She reached down, grabbed the ice pick, and spun back around. The girl pushed herself up and slowly wobbled to her feet. She tried to walk but staggered, visibly shaken. Laura raised the blade over her shoulder.
0: Don't you move!
3: The classroom door swung open. Mrs. Hetfield from across the hallway looked at all the carnage. Her hands went to her mouth. Her eyes exploded tenfold at the sight of Laura standing over the student while wielding an ice pick. Then, like an apparition, she was gone again, leaving only the funk of too much perfume.
0: Get the police!
3: Laura cried after her. She turned back to the girl.
0: Listen, miss, I don't know what's wrong with you, but this, what you're doing, it won't help. I'm here to help. I'm here to listen. We can work through this, but please stop hurting people.
3: Lara's breathing came in quick, wispy gasps. Her heart pattered against her breastbone.
0: Stab her!
3: Fear of both death and failure tugged at Lara from two different sides and threatened to tear her in half knowing that she literally held their means of escape in her sweaty palm. The sharpened steel, cocked and ready. But that was an impossible choice to make. To kill a child when her job was to help them. The girl hissed and swatted the air between them, but stayed her ground. Her nose bled brightly down her lips.
0: You can talk to me. You can trust me.
3: Lara offered, in as steady a voice as she could muster.
0: There's a problem at home, right? A problem that causes you to lash out like this, because we can deal with those problems.
3: The girl growled. Feral and inhuman, the poor child would require major psychiatric help to pull her from the darkness, and to talk her down from the frenzy seemed the best course of action. That she hadn't yet pounced after losing the weapon gave Lara a modicum of hope. A rustle came from the hallway. Principal Croker rushed into the room, wearing a coat and tie. The door banged against the stopper. His jaw dropped.
4: Not again.
3: Mrs. Hetfield showed up in the hallway behind him, hopping around and tapping frantically on her phone.
0: This little girl is sick,
3: Laura told them. The girl looked at them and gave a wildcat snarl. Stab her, the principal ordered. With the weapon still held high, Lara tightened her grip. I said stab her while you have the chance.
4: She's a killer. Don't trust her. Stab her.
3: Lara looked at the ice pick. Seven inches of metal death. Where the shaft met the hilt, the wood glistened with blood. Even if she decided to do it, to command her arm to send the steel point hurtling forward, Lara knew her muscles would lock up. Her body would revolt. Her elbow would freeze because she simply didn't have it in her. And Lara knew that fact with cold certainty. The girl is not what she looks like, shouted Principal Croker. Lara clenched her teeth, reared back, but hesitated. The girl crouched down and sprang. The young body rammed into Lara, clutching her shoulders, spilling her backward. The weight heaved upon her chest made Lara trip over an upturned desk and she smacked to the floor on her side. The girl snatched the ice pick from her hand and crawled over, stomping Lara's cheek into her teeth. The chorus of terrified voices rose to a crescendo as the crowd of children burst from its cluster. bawling, stumbling, falling, they all tried to flee. The girl moved like a threshing machine. "'spearing the blade through body and bone in vicious fervor. "'Mara Butler fell onto Lara, fish-eyed, blank-faced, and bleeding from her temple. "'Lara rolled her onto the floor. "'She stood up shakily as the crazed girl bent over a body, "'pinned to a desktop, and stirred the hilt-deep blade around "'in Vanessa Wilkins' eye socket. "'With every rotation of the handle in the girl's face,' Lara's sanity swirled down a drain. That whirlpool of madness grew brisk and vigorous. Principal Croker sprinted across the room to the vase of roses he'd left for Lara. He snatched the clear glass and ripped out the flowers. When he turned around, an expression of fury lit his face like a halo of fire. He charged the girl, held up the vase and slung it around, gripping its base. Water flung from the opening in a fan of thick droplets that splattered the girl on the body of the Wilkins girl. Be gone, creature, and stay
4: gone this
3: time. Where the liquid hit her, the girl's flesh sizzled and popped. Tendrils of smoke curled up from the wounds. Her blistering flesh billowed with smoke, and the howl that came from her lungs rattled the panes of the classroom windows. Her skin melted and dripped like candle wax, splattering to the floor.
5: Precious Jesus in heaven!
3: Mrs. Hetchfield wailed from the doorway and covered her mouth. Having fallen to her knees, the girl shuddered in a heap. The shirt and sweatpants peeled away from her rupturing body in an ashen disintegration, revealing grey-wet flesh beneath the human skin. Webbed with veins and marbled a dull blue-gray, "'like a bloated corpse. "'This girl, or whatever it was, quivered on its haunches. "'Then its ailing moans grew with strength and anger. "'Principal Croker held a desk above his head.
4: "'Die, you abomination!'
3: "'He hurled it, but the creature swatted it away with a screech. "'The thing's face now a featureless mass of folds and wrinkles.' brown hair having molted away in dark clumps. It gave a raspy roar and rose back up. The girl was a girl no longer. The thing grunted and growled, then leapt to the ceiling and somersaulted as it did. It gripped the suspended grid between the acoustical tiles, using claws on feet and hands to hang inverted in a crawling position. The metal channels bowed beneath the weight.
5: Oh, dear God!
3: Mrs. Hetfield cried. Like some hellish crustacean, it scuttled across the ceiling toward the hall where she stood. Mrs. Hetfield hit the floor, and it crawled through the top of the doorway out of sight. Damn! Principal Crocker chased it into the hallway, leapfrogging the teacher and tracking the ceiling as he pursued it. At last, police sirens sounded their arrival somewhere outside. Lara found herself resting in a ball on the bloody floor, knees tucked beneath her chin, arms hugging her shins, whimpering along with the surviving students. Principal Croker soon came back through the door and barked some very angry words at her, but she had difficulty following their meaning. They were lost in a tempest of shattered dreams thundering with the ghastly snarls of child killers and the desperate screams of baby victims. Croker said something about following orders and learning lessons, something about pragmatism versus idealism, and how whenever you have a killer cornered, you should always take them out. Then his temper seemed to wane, and he mentioned how this sort of thing hardly ever happens. When a crowd gathered outside the door, the principal stopped talking. He looked at his hands, he looked at the dead children, then turned away and gave a choking sob. His hands then went to his tie and straightened it. He sniffed once and swallowed. I'm sorry I said those things, he said to Lara in a much softer tone. He placed a hand on her shoulder. It,
4: it wasn't fair. I'm just a little overwhelmed right now. I, I thought this was all behind us. But you should get out of here. Get yourself cleaned up. huh? You look very shaken. You're going to need to talk to someone. Get your head straight. This kind of trauma can haunt you.
3: He glanced down the hallway.
4: I have to go speak to the police now.
3: As he stepped away, she managed to utter a few syllables.
0: Wait, I don't understand.
3: Croker stopped at the doorway. I know you don't. I'm, I'm sorry. The world made no sense at that moment. None of what had happened should have ever taken place in a rational world. And Lara needed grounding in a rational world. She needed a touchstone for her sanity and for Croker to give it to her.
0: What happened here? What on earth happened in my classroom?
3: The way those last three words sputtered out, Lara realized she was blubbering. I
4: don't exactly have an explanation. Nothing that would make you feel
3: better. He looked down the hall. Uh, The police.
0: But you know something.
3: Lara said.
0: There's something you're not telling me.
3: Principal Croker hung his head. He gave a long sigh and spoke at the ground. You're
4: right. I'm sorry. What can I say?
3: He looked up welcome to shady break then he walked away thank you for listening to today's episode of the wicked library the wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, 9thstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wickedlibrary. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover, created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, it's a great channel to watch. And if you're interested in setting up a home studio, now is the perfect time to watch. Mike just moved from Pittsburgh, and he's at his new home, just getting started at setting up his home studio from scratch. So watch his journey at BoothJunkie.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on the wickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the monsters to find their way to your house.